0: Hey guys, welcome back to the CyberTalk podcast. In this particular episode, we're going to be taking a look at personal security, or OPSEC if you like. And uh, yeah, this is going to be quite a controversial uh, video or episode, or if you're listening to this uh, via Spotify or iTunes, then you know, audio. and the reason for that is, of course, we have multiple reasons why this is so controversial and that's because there's tons of ways, you know, to secure yourself and it all really depends on your own workflow, how you use a computer, when you use a computer, stuff like that, you know, the amount of accounts you hold. Um, so the, the second reason why I'm making this this particular episode and why it's going to be in such a long format is because I believe there's needs to be a very good discussion about each stage of this and we're going to start off with you know from the base level we're talking about the operating system and a bit of physical security and then we'll talk about backups data encryption you know stuff that can help you fight uh, you know stuff like ransomware nowadays which is becoming increasingly common and, you know, data loss. And we'll talk about managing your passwords securely, synchronizing your passwords, uh, browser keychains, so on and so forth. So this is gonna be focused primarily on a user by user basis. I'm not gonna be targeting uh, organizations or organizational security. So you can take this as sort of like a personal security policy uh, that, you know, you can implement and to ensure that your OPSEC is is great. It's, you know, you're keeping everything nice and tight. And, uh, you know, you can also apply this to your organization if you wish. Um, So, uh, the areas that I want to cover in particular are going to be, as I said, operating system security, and then we'll move up, uh, uh, you know, as the abstraction increases. So, getting started, the first thing I'm going to do is let's talk about operating system security and, you know, first of all, protecting yourself uh, at the operating system layer. So, first of all, let's talk about physical security, right, which is very, very important. And as you've seen in previous videos, when we talked about things like con boot, and um, also resetting the linux root password using grub Uh, one of the flaws there with the obvious security uh one of the obvious security flaws there was the fact that i was able to boot into the bios um, and also modify the bootloader so that's essentially the first level i would assume i'm not talking about physical level uh, as to the actual physical security of the physical computer uh, just talking about the first layer of so the BIOS. So it's very essential that you have your BIOS secured and you know, you don't have uh, uh, and password protected and you really don't have or no one else or an un- unauth- authenticated user doesn't have access to your particular, to your BIOS so that they can make changes and boot from particular devices. So locking down your boot, your boot sequence is extremely important firstly. Now, when we talk about operating systems, and uh, I'm going to be sticking to Windows and Linux or Unix. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to be talking about Mac OS mostly because I don't have any experience with that. Uh, as much as I would like. So uh, again, uh, you can take that with uh, with a pinch of salt. But uh, talking about Windows and Linux, of course, this each of these operating systems is gonna have its own nuances in terms of security. Windows being the most targeted operating system by viruses and malware. The first thing you need to do is you need to actually secure yourself with an antivirus. And Windows Defender does a pretty good job. I'm not gonna judge you. If you use Windows, that's entirely your choice. Um, so as I said, Windows Defender is now g- getting extremely uh, extremely competent at uh, detecting you know, new strains of malware early on, and also offering ransomware protection to some extent. And the way it does this is by offering you a backup solution. So if I open up my browser here, uh, I'm just going to introduce you to what I would use on a Windows system. And again, there are tons of other antivirus options available for you. But in my opinion, I think Malwarebytes is doing the best job. Uh, because again, you can go through their website. We're going to be having a write-up of, uh, on this on hackexploit.org. And uh, you have various plans based on whether you're running a, uh, you know, a home computer or a business solution. And uh, you can also download the free version. It works perfectly fine. I've used it for a long time and it really is fantastic. Offers you internet protection as well against phishing attacks, stuff like that. Uh, so that's something you want to take into consideration. As I said, I recommend malware bytes. It's one of my uh my most reliable antivirus solutions that i've used and um, you can check it out for yourself there are tons of other solutions i'm not going to touch upon antivirus that much mainly because i know it's not going to be a primary focus because you know you buy an antivirus and uh, depending on what you download onto your system it either works or it doesn't and when i'm talking about file downloads i'll talk about torrenting and uh uh, those of you who usually are fans of pirated software and why that's not a good idea anymore we you know with the increased uh, with the increasing uh, popularity of ransomware uh, secondly if you're still on windows i would recommend running an anti-root kit and malwarebytes also has an anti-root kit so uh, you can see that uh, th- th- this utility is primarily just based to help you uh, identify and remove deep lying root kits within your system, because that's something very common with Windows. Um, so again, you can check this out for yourself. It's very simple. It's currently in beta. It actually scans through in your entire registry, your drivers finding, you know, really, really deep lying root kits that are embedded into your system at a very deep level. Um, so that's what I recommend for an anti-rootkit. I think having an anti-malware or an antivirus and then an anti-rootkit is essential. As for Linux, uh, in terms of the antivirus solution, I think what, uh, what becomes extremely uh, important is, first of all, securing yourself uh, at the drive or disk level. Which is enabling encryption, but we'll talk about that uh, with Windows as well. But uh, for the antivirus solution, I think Clam Antivirus is great uh, for an antivirus solution. So again, uh, it offers you it offers you various uh, very various features. You have a graphical user interfaces as well as a terminal uh, as well as the terminal interface. Um, And uh, again, you can perform multiple types of scans and it works on Windows, Mac, Linux, and uh, and Unix as well. So uh, again, I'm not going to go too deep into that. The purpose of, of this video is to, you know, cover operational security. Now, if you're still on Windows, let's talk about drive or disk encryption, which you can do if you have Windows 10 Pro, I believe, using BitLocker or the utility BitLocker to encrypt your drive. And this is very important because, again, if you encrypt your drive at boot or you have uh, an encrypted drive, it means that, you know, no one can really recover your data without decrypting it. So I'm not going to go into the in-depth into the in, in uh, of, of what encryption is and how it affects your system based on whether or not you encrypt your drive. Uh, but just putting everything short uh, or, you know, uh, cutting it short, uh, encryption is really good for securing your data from unauthenticated access and um, Again, you can use it to store secure files. You can encrypt an entire drive. It's entirely up to you And this. You can do the same with Linux. In fact, many Linux distributions come with the ability to encrypt the drive from the install going forward. Um, Now, when talking about software updates and and upgrades, Linux, of course, handles it very well. You're based on your distribution, whether you're running a rolling release or uh, you where whether you're running your 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 distribution on rolling release. So of course you have Arch Linux, you then have Ubuntu and um so on and so forth. So your software is updated and you can you can keep your software updated really well by you know running various cron jobs or a bash script for that. However on Windows this can become very cumbersome and one of the solutions that been a real lifesaver for me, especially when dealing with organizations is patch my PC, right? And this can be found at patchmypc.com now, patch my pc essentially is a free to use program that uh that allows you to keep over 300 apps and programs on your computer up to date so again you just run the program and it scans through all the programs that you have installed on your system and then it automatically updates them for you without you having having to to go to the individual vendor sites and doing that yourself Um, So that's a great utility. Again, you can find that uh, within the description section or the podcast notes if you're listening to this via audio. And again, there'll be a write-up of this particular episode um, on hackersplay.org. So I'm not going to be touching upon, you know, the more um, utilitarian aspects of this video where are talking about updating your system encryption. Um, So now that we've talked about that, uh, let's talk about, I want to talk about browser security, which is interesting. And... um, uh, essentially protecting yourself from being fingerprinted by various websites, which is very important. And, uh, you know, choosing a secure browser that, you know, meets your requirements or your security requirements. So typically uh, nowadays, the de facto standards are always going to be um, Chrome, uh, Mozilla, or Safari. If you run Mac, I'm not really familiar with that. However, we have new players on the block that offer a secure experience, one of them being the Brave browser, which again is very good at, at blocking uh, fingerprinting by many websites and has very good blockers and it's entirely up to you as to whether you want to use a browser that uh, essentially controls what you see based on the advertisements they show you and also protects you from trackers and stuff like that um but brave in my opinion is a fantastic browser has very, very great blocking uh for for various trackers that you know sites actually set up so and you know through through your cookie file can actually trace you and trace your browsing history and what your content preferences are, so Brave in that way is fantastic. So you can check that out. You can find them at brave.com. Uh, so the great thing about Brave, um, again, the, their whole agenda is to take back control of your browsing experience. With and you can you do that by blocking ads and trackers. And of course, that's very important because if you're a so someone who's not completely tech savvy, you know, you just use a computer for work, you, you know, opening documents, uh, browsing the web. Watching videos, uh, then I think one of the important things you need is an as a as a browser that blocks malicious ads, right? So, typically on the internet, we're gonna have you know two types of ads. Unfortunately, at least that's how I sort it. Um, one of them is going to be a genuine ad that uh, you know we have legitimate companies trying to advertise their pro- product, and I have no problem with that, right? And I actually, if I have if I have a website that running ads or a YouTube channel that I support running ads, I will disable my ad blocker for their channel so that I can support them by watching their videos and well, you know, effectively being monetized, because that's my way of supporting the creator or the website that I'm I'm visiting. However, we then have the second tier of advertisements, which are malicious in that uh, they're essentially trying to, to actually get you to click on something on the on, on the basis that it you know, it's the offering you something and then uh, it's not something entirely different. So uh, usually you'll find this uh, happening on a lot of children computers or uh, a lot of elderly uh, individuals com- computers in that you know they go, they browse around the internet and they're new to this and they see an advertisement and they assume it's legitimate because in the real world, every ad- advertisement is is of course uh, is certified and you you can put up something that is malicious. Um, so they assume or they bring this assumption with them onto the internet. And, uh, you know, you just click on all of these advertisements promising you different things, promising you or offering you a gift that, you know, they want something, you want a new iPad. And you just need to click over here, give us your personal information. And then they say, hey, uh, you know, we need to ship this to you. Uh, Can you give us your credit card or your debit card details? And uh, they do that. And then, of course, uh, they essentially get scammed and uh, their, their information is stolen. That's on the elderly side of things. Now, when you're talking about children, the obvious thing that they're going to do is engage in gaming, right? So they want to play games on their computer. And the first thing they're going to do is you know, search for games. And uh, most of the websites that have been set up it, that to offer free games or to target the child demographic who are just getting their computer for the first time are going to, of course, load it with tons of malware like uh, crypto miners, stuff like that. It's becoming actually very common now. And they're going to be loaded with advertisements, advertisements that are really not suited towards children. Uh, we're seeing that quite a bit now. They really don't care as to what advertisers they are actually advertising their programs, games, applications. And then, of course, uh, we get to the most important aspect, which is piracy, right? Now, piracy is not something that I support. Uh, I understand it. I understand torrenting. Uh, and how that plays into piracy, because it it really does in that it's a it offers a decentralized solution for you know sharing files, and I love that technology. However, as we know from uh, from the early two thousands uh, till now, I think uh, torrenting is extremely popular and essentially allows you to you know distribute or redistribute uh, illegal material or pirated material that uh, again validates every, every every copyright law out there. Now, of course, this seems harmless and you're like, if I can get something for free, why don't I just do that instead of paying for it? It sounds smart, right? That's uh, something that, or that's a conclusion you would arrive at logically. However, if you look closer at it um, and how the whole torrent and piracy system is set up uh, in conjunction with each other, you're dealing with a system that is uh, really about making profit or making something on top if if you know what I mean. So typically, uh, again, based on, on 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 how older sites used to read, and let's just use the example of games. So, you know, uh, games are the most pirated piece of software online and movies on top of that. So uh, with games, uh, you're essentially dealing with a program or an executable, right? And uh, we used to have m- various uh, crackers, game crackers out there, and, you know, very, various game cracking teams that would essentially buy the game legitimately, and then uh, crack it, reverse engineer it, and crack it, and offer, uh, and, and you know, essentially repack the entire game again, and then redistribute it. And the way they would make money off this is, um, is by putting it on the website and having advertisements on the website. And then you know, because you get a lot of traffic, you generate money, so on and so forth, and you're able to make a profit, or you know, on on the essential uh, on the price of the game, right? So you buy a game with the hopes that you'll be able to make enough profit by cracking it, uh, by offering the, the the cracked version of the game for free to download. Um, now, of course, th- the landscape changed, I think around 20, I'm not really sure, so I don't want to name any dates, but uh, we had the whole invention of ad blockers, right? Which was a great technology because it blocked the malicious ads, however, with this, uh, the torrent, the the cracking teams and all the piracy teams out there essentially started realizing, all right, so, you know, users are blocking ads. We're not getting that much revenue. We need to change out our strategy. And they started switching into much more ambitious things like uh, in, in, you know, uh, essentially uh, bundling various survey programs with their with their games, essentially tricking users to downloading them. And this is not all. I'm just giving you a basic history and rundown of this. And of course, they went a step further and they started uh, injecting, you know, crypto miners onto the, uh, uh, into the executables. And, uh, you know, you essentially launch the game. It works fine, but it's using your system resources. And they were able to mine your, uh, or to use your computer as a node essentially for mining cryptocurrency. And then, of course, we moved to the the current landscape. Uh, and I think it's, this is one of the most important things to talk about in this particular episode. And that is ransomware. Now, ransomware, again, is you really have to respect the simplicity of it, right, Uh, and how you can use that to actually leverage people. Now, I'm not encouraging it. I'm just simply pointing out that, uh, you know, if, if you're a cracking team or you provide pirated software or you pirate movies or TV shows or anything like that, and uh, you you want to make a decent amount of money, and you know your target demographic are going to be little children. They're going to be el- uh, the elderly group. Uh, what you do is you just bundle in some ransomware with that, and uh, you know you you ask for a, a nominal amount or uh, you know a trivial amount. I you know let, let's keep things really simple. So let's say I I I pirate a game, right? And this is totally hypothetical. Uh, let's say a new game is released uh let's say from a company like ubisoft and uh, i think they still use denovo i don't really don't play games anymore um so they use the denovo anti crack uh system to essentially um to essentially provide a security for the application and you know prevent uh, essentially the reverse engineering of it Um, So that, and you know, in in most cases, the cracking teams will crack the game, offer a crack uh, or patch the entire executable to remove the activation aspect of it. And uh, then, you know, I would package it with a a simple piece of ransomware that has no public uh, decryption key, right? One that is completely self sustained in that the only person that has the decryption key is me or in most cases, I don't even have it, right? So my goal is not even to to actually return or to decrypt the files in the event that i get i get the ransom so again i bundle this together with the software and i say i add my bitcoin address or my paypal address if you're stupid enough to do that uh, so you add your bitcoin address and you say hey um you know i want so and so otherwise you know files are going to be permanently encrypted so uh an innocent user downloads this program and the system gets infected with the ransomware all the files get encrypted and are essentially unrecoverable and now they're being told to pay a ransom and in most cases uh and this is very common all around the world you know, from various surveys i've been reading in terms of uh malware uh malware threats and um and who the affect the most we have many uh, many individuals within companies and organizations essentially downloading you know tons of software pirated software and of course then this infects the entire on uh, the the entire system and then based on the type of ransomware you're dealing with it can then start hopping onto other computers on the network and if you do this uh, on the on on your organization's network you're essentially risking the destruction of the entire company's data based on their their backup policies or the security policies themselves so again um going back to the initial topic i know i went off on a tangent there uh i would not recommend pirating software Now, again i said that that is more of a moral question that you have to ask yourself if you can afford to buy a piece of software or to buy a game and you legitimately uh, feel that you know you want to support this developer for the fantastic product that they're offering then just pay for it remember i know the internet is, uh, is is an area that is a bit like the wild west in that if you feel like you can get it for free then it's a good deal but nowadays I don't think it's that much of a good deal based on the risk you're taking. And of course, you can download the files into a VM and, and see whether or not they're infected with ransomware. But that's not something that, you know, I would recommend you do. Just buy the piece of software, or buy the game, and you don't have to worry about it ever again. You own it for life based on the DRM. Um, and that's something I think we'll discuss uh, probably in a later episode. And, you know, the ethics of using DRM and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, using a secure browser is very important. And as I said, we're talking about fingerprinting, which your browser does, whether you know it or not. Your browser actually knows a lot about the system that you're using. Now, why is this important? Well, let's say, you know, uh, you have a decent system. You're running a, you know, an Intel or an AMD Ryzen uh, Threadripper CPU And for your gpu you're running an nvidia gtx or a a really powerful graphics card and you go into a website that has a crypto miner or a crypto miner module set up Uh, what they do is they read your your they actually get a hold of your browser fingerprint and then they go through the information and they essentially pick up the systems that you know can offer them the most in terms of uh, mining ransomware so ransomware as i said requires a lot of computation uh computational power to, to actually mine and as as we progress with uh you know cryptocurrencies like like bitcoin and uh, very recently we had we had the halving point um mining essentially becomes more expensive and uh consumes a whole lot more resources. so these websites essentially detect what systems are powerful enough to, to actually offer them a, you know return on investment, uh, so to say, and then they essentially use your system to, to actually uh, to, to actually mine for ransomware and essentially utilizing your system resources. So uh, again, uh, a browser that actually blocks much of the fingerprinting is going to be a browser like Brave. Now of course, this will not block. Uh, any ransomware uh, mining that's happening on that website, but uh, it's a great way of protecting your your actual browsing fingerprint uh, based on your system. Now, of course, if you're really, really uh, paranoid about your security, uh, you can use operating systems like Tails, you can use Tor, it's entirely up to you. Uh, However, I want to keep Tor and VPNs uh, for another video because uh, I want to actually explain those two, uh, and I'm going to be talking about encryption and changing your ip addresses how vpns work exactly for another episode so uh i'm just gonna be sticking to you know personal security so you have the brave browser you then have vivaldi which is not open source um so vivaldi again is uh does the same thing that brave does to a certain extent however i think that brave is much better at this current point that's just my own personal opinion and uh, yeah so you want to ensure that you don't download garbage Right. Don't download pirated software. It really isn't worth it. Um, ensure that your fingerprint is protected if you want to do that. Don't v- visit malicious websites. Stay away from pornographic websites because these are. And, and I, you know, I have to be quite honest with you guys here. Uh, these are the sites that we have a lot of malware coming through right now. In fact, if you read most of the uh, most of the statistics, these are the sites where you have most of the malware being targeted to users, you know, um, so that's something you want to keep, you want, you want to keep your eye out for. Um, and talking about browser security, of course, we need to talk about uh, an important aspect of browser security, which is going to be your, your various plugins and add ons. Now, as I said, this is going to vary uh, greatly between browser, you know, from browser to browser, because some modules or add ons or plugins, extensions, whatever you want to call them, might not exist on all browsers. Now, Bra- the Brave browser, Uh, is built on Chromium, uh, which means Chrome extensions are, uh, can actually run on, on the Brave browser as well as Vivaldi, I think, but Firefox modules are slightly different. So the first thing you want to do is you want to get a plugin called HTTPS Everywhere. And this plugin will ensure that your connection is always kept to HTTPS, and will actually warn you when you know the, uh, a certificate is invalid or expired on a particular website. So, in in today's day and age, I think you should always be using HTTPS. It's just a again, it encrypts your traffic on the website, and it's just extremely important. Uh, the second add-on or plugin I think you should have is a password generator. So I'll talk about password security in a second. So. A uh, password generator essentially allows you to generate your passwords really, really quickly on the fly. And again, if I just search for one here, um, if I just search for a password generator, um, you usually have a few good ones here. And um, the reason I recommend a password generator is mainly because you always want to be generating a new password for any new account you actually create or sign into right so there are tons of password generator add ons and essentially they allow you to generate a password uh, using various uh, variables and parameters so you can specify. Uh, The password length that you want any special characters uppercase lowercase numbers. So again, I'm not going to talk about password security because I think if you are an IT professional, you know that a password should at least be eight characters long should include uh, uppercase and lowercase letters, numbers, uh, symbols, Um, you know, it it needs to be quite complex to avoid, uh, you know, easily avoid hackers being easily able to guess your passwords, which is still very common. Surprisingly, you still have users writing in their name and their birthday, uh, their name and the day they were, uh, they were married or something like that, um, which you know, is, is going to be extremely easy to, to get through. So your password is sort of your first is the most important. So you want to have a really long password really complex and you can generate them using password generators. But let's talk about password storage, which is an area that I'm actually quite vocal about because if you have an in, in today's day uh, there's an account for every website you sign up to whether you're talking about um your online banking accounts whether you're talking about PayPal accounts you're talking about your email uh your social networking websites um your subscription sites uh, you know you could also have a uh, if your government offers uh services online your government online portal requires an account and so you have all of these services that you utilize with an account that also have a password, and all of these areas should now be seen as a single point of failure. So let's just take a scenario here. Let's say, um, let's say you, uh, you, you essentially are using the same email and same password. This is very common for every account that you own, right? And the reason you do this is 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 quite innocent, right? And many elderly people do this. Many young people I've seen do this. Uh, where, you know, they sign up to all websites with the same email, same password, right? So the password is extremely simple. As I said, it's a uh, a pseudonym for something that's important to them. It could be the name of their their parent, their spouse, uh, their pet with, uh, you know, just a few numbers at the end or a combination of numbers that's extremely important to them. And uh, that's it. And then they use it for every website that that they won't want to sign up to. Now, the problem with that is, if one of your of these websites gets compromised in a data breach i'm not talking about your account only being compromised if a website or a service gets compromised which happens every year we we can see it now and that's why we have websites like haveibeenpwned.com which essentially allow you to check and see whether your account or your email uh has been leaked it has been leaked or was part of any particular data breach so what happens is let's say you sign up to a um, let's say you sign up to a forum right and uh, this is a forum about one of your hobbies and you're really passionate about it and what happens is this forum is not does not have a proper does not have proper security and they have an insecure server and what happens one day is an attacker is able to successfully get onto the server, you know, dumps the database tables. And uh, within those database tables, they, of course, have the users and their relevant passwords. And guess what? You're part of that database table. And they go and post these, uh, this actual leak, these credential leaks and your account, your email, and that password are now leaked. All right. So what's going to happen is you're going to get or have individuals or hackers, they're going to sell this, this leaked data. hackers that are then going to automate the process of checking your email and password for every possible service and account online so they're gonna check Facebook they're going to Facebook they're gonna log in with your stolen uh, email and that password and if you're using the same password guess what your Facebook account is not compromised All right. so they now have access to your Facebook account if anyone still uses that anymore Uh, they're now going to target Instagram or that works, all right. we got his instagram they then they then change the default credentials or your credentials, and you know you're you're essentially losing access to all your accounts because you wanted to use the same password. So the first tip here is use a unique, strong, random password for every account you create. Now, that introduces a new issue, which is where and how on earth do I store 200 emails and uh, 200 passwords uh, that I'm supposed to, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be using? Well, number one, which is very important, it might be controversial, but uh, you really don't have to worry about that, right? So if your password security from the get-go, from your computer level or your operating system level is good... And you use a browser like Brave or Chrome, which have very good keychains that are secured and in, uh, that are secured with your, your actual operating system password. It means that, and a keychain essentially that, that, that's what it is. It's, uh, it is a key. It is a keychain, uh, and it, its job is to hold all the passwords for you in your browser so that you can perform things like auto filling. So you don't have to type it in every time, which is great because if your system is compromised by something like a keylogger, or by a, a deep line rootkit, then you're not essentially typing in your password every time, which is it means it's not being logged. All your passwords are getting autofilled automatically. Now, as I said, keychains are not really they they're not looked upon with great confidence, and that's because again, they, it offers a single point of failure. In that, if a hacker gets access to your operating system password, your oper- your your browser keychain is most likely going to be secured with the operating system password but uh, what you can do is you can separate the the two at least on linux i know that's how it works is if you change uh, let's say you have an initial password for your user account and you install chrome and you start using that uh, you start using chrome and you start saving your passwords within the keychain and uh, again when you try and and view the password stored in the keychain it's going to ask you for your operating system password so you enter the password if it's correct it allows you to view all your passwords if you change your password after you've set up your system uh the browser keychain is still going to be stored with the previous user password so in that way you can separate you can then create two 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 points of failure here where if your operating system is compromised then uh, they really can't get access to your browser keychain however that's not something i would rely on so in terms of password security and password storage, I would recommend using a uh, piece of software called KeePass, right? So KeePass essentially allows you to store all your passwords in an encrypted format, right? So it's just a database where you can store your passwords, and this is something I really recommend. Now, when I say it's encrypted, it means that you actually use a password to secure your your, your password database. Now, that may sound a bit uh, confusing, but... It really is it really is fantastic, because you can store your password on your system, and without uh, and, and without the the password that you use to secure your keypass database, no one can access your passwords, right? So let's say you have 200 accounts and you start generating new passwords for all of these accounts and you start storing them in your keypass database, that keypass database is encrypted with your own unique password, which again, I recommend that you keep very safe it should be something that you remember you shouldn't you should never write down your passwords especially on your computer uh in terms of uh of doing it physically against many people do that uh i wouldn't recommend writing down your password on a piece of paper maybe if you have a if you have a safe or somewhere that you know you know is secure although it's not something i recommend i know a lot of people who do that manually actually uh but Again, I do not recommend storing your passwords. And I've seen many people doing this. Many students do this as well in university. They open a TXT file, and they start saving all their credentials within the TXT file. Now, that is an unbelievably stupid thing to do. And I'm not hating on anyone, but you really need to look at your, your passwords, your your credentials as keys to various services that are very important. And if your identity gets taken online, you're in a you're in a real mess and you can take up to almost 10 years to recover your identity fully on the internet so you guys need to take this very very seriously i recommend using KeePass. now of course when using a database like keypass and using multiple devices so you may want to you know log into your favorite websites on your mobile phone uh, on your tablet on your laptop on your main workstation how do you synchronize all your passwords? Well, as I said, many browsers like Google Chrome, which again, I'm not gonna go into whether you should or shouldn't use it, offers you the ability to synchronize your bookmarks, passwords, everything, essentially all into your one Google account. So if you install Chrome on Android and you, you actually enable the synchronization option, you'll be able to access your bookmarks, passwords, et cetera, all on your mobile device, which again, the the keychain is gonna be secured with the Android devices security mechanism in the uh, so if you're using a pass uh, fingerprint, it's going to require you to put in your fingerprint. So it's really secure on all ends. However, as I said, I don't recommend that I would recommend setting up uh, or using a password, um, a, a you know, a password database like KeyPass. in terms of synchronization, there are tons of companies online. Like one of them is LastPass, that actually offers themselves as uh they they offer the service to store your passwords for you and then synchronize them through a browser extension now i wouldn't recommend this because again that's a single point of failure if that company gets breached your passwords are going to be breached but of course they offer encryption and stuff like that so that's entirely up to you uh, whether or not you want to use a service like that it's a paid service of course Uh, one of the great things about running your own systems is the fact that you control all the variables so what I can do if I want to synchronize my database password is I can set up a next cloud instance or on a VPS and then I can have all my important files. I can essentially set up my own cloud instance. I don't recommend you do that if you don't need to, but that's how I would go about syncing my passwords. Um, So, you know, I, I set up a next cloud instance and this is on a personal private server that's not exposed to anyone else. Right. And uh, I have the database file sitting on there and I can access it from anywhere in the world. And again, as I said, the passwords are fully encrypted. So I am the one I'm the only one who can actually put in my my password to to actually access that. So. Um, for password security, I know I rambled a lot uh, there that's very important. Now when talking about authentication, uh, we now have new security features that have been implemented which offer you know now multi-layer security, which is two- factor authentication. Now two factor authentication is something that uh, in its earlier in its earlier versions, um, when talking about text message based uh, two factor authentication, where you know once you log into your account, if you have two factor authentication enabled, they send you a message, a verification code to your phone number, and you then enter that verification code, and then the, you know the 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 system or the service that you're using is able to verify. All right, this is the person who is you know this the, the person who is claiming to actually access the account is that person, right? So they're able to identify or to verify your identity that way. And of course, that was uh, I, I've already talked about this. Uh, that was uh, we we had many attackers or uh, campaigns called SIM jacking uh, campaigns, and essentially these are very targeted campaigns at particular users users that usually have a lot of digital currency on them. That we actually had a previous episode on that on the Hack Exploit podcast, where I covered uh, a very good uh, example of this and how this was orchestrated and I'll just go I'll just go through it a little bit um so the sim jacking or sim swap attack as it's called is where attackers are able to through social engineering they're able to get uh they're able to call your phone provider right and uh, then they essentially through social engineering say uh I've lost my phone and I need I need you to actually replace or to to actually I I need my number back right and I want you to disable my previous line that was just stolen and i want you to redirect everything here and of course if it's a successful social engineering campaign your phone provider does this and they deactivate your legitimate line without asking the attacker of any identity, identity identity verification of course it's gotten better now and so now the attacker already has some level of of information about you or has some detail about you and has compromised a few accounts and so they you know, the through through stolen credentials, phishing campaigns, uh, they're able to get a legitimate password from you. They log in into the service that requires two-factor authentication or that has two two-factor authentication. And now all the SMS messages are now being redirected to them. And so what they do is they usually do this when you're asleep, right? So that even if you're getting notifications on your phone, uh you aren't you're you're asleep. So this is usually when it's done. As I said in that in that example or that episode. We talked about a user who had a lot of money uh, stored in uh, in many of the crypto websites. I uh, I, I can actually remember what website it was, and uh, he had two-factor authentication enabled. Uh, but uh, through through whatever breach they were able to get, I think his password, or I think they actually performed a uh, a phishing campaign on him. Um, and they were able to get the password. However, the the, uh, the issue of two-factor authentication was the issue, and so they performed their reconnaissance on him. They found out what carrier he was on, and uh, they then waited. They planned it was very meticulously planned, right? And they called the the carrier and they essentially lay it down and they come up with this fake uh this fake story and the carrier says oh yeah yeah because you know they they're trying to be as helpful as as possible and this is the, the problem with customer service like customer service their purpose is to get the issue resolved as quickly as possible and so if you call them and you have a bit of identity regarding you know the person you're trying to hack like the id number or in america the social the social security number uh, you it's it's quite easy to actually trick the the carrier into into actually doing something for you. And so, uh, long story short, they were able to say, "All right, uh, we just lost this this phone, uh, and we need you to to actually deactivate that and then activate it on this line or whatever." And they did that, and now everything is being redirected to their phone, and they log in. They they're able to get the two factor authentication message and they they get access to his account and they steal everything right and uh, that's it so again this is uh usually this was the, the problem with early two-factor authentication and now of, of course we have authenticator applications that synchronize um or, O2, or, or otp uh, applications that allow you to again um to essentially synchronized verification codes through a mobile device or through your browser and again these these are not connected to 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 stuff like your sim card or your phone number so again that uh, is something you want to keep secure uh and mo- most people have seen having the otp applications like the google authenticator on their mobile phone which isn't a good idea because if someone is able to get access to your phone and it's not locked uh which i recommend you do it's very important to keep your phone locked and now that we have fingerprint verification i think it's even uh, you shouldn't be, be be you shouldn't have your phone being compromised you also have encryption on your smartphones now and uh, especially if you have a very uh very good security on your device and your device is encrypted, then the only thing the attackers or anyone who steals your phone is able to do is just reset it and essentially lose the data. And in most cases, if the phone is encrypted and offers a certain level of encryption, then that is impossible as well, making the phone useless to a certain extent. Um. So, uh, yeah, so authentication and authenticators, or uh, OTP authenticators, I think should be also kept quite secure. Uh, because they offer another point of failure. And all you're trying to do is manage complexity and increase the amount of variability with your security in that uh, you're not trying to be predictable here. That's the important thing. You need to be extremely vigilant with security. You need to ensure that everything is kept as randomized as possible when talking about passwords, right? And as clandestine as possible. I mean, you know, you, you shouldn't be posting too much of your life on social media as it is, Right. And it should be very difficult for attackers to know, you know, what services you're using online, which again can be quite difficult to control on your own. But uh, again, if you're in the public like I am, I have tons of accounts that are online and I get tons of attacks like on me almost on a monthly basis. And, you know, my websites get attacked, uh, my personal accounts, people try and register onto websites with my emails, which they can't, of course, because... The verification email comes to me. Uh, they try and hack uh, Twitter. I mean, everyone's li- like literally. Once you're in the social, well, once you're out there, and you run a uh, a project like hackersploit, you're, you're obviously going to get attacked. So I have a lot of experience with this, and I can actually tell you what works and what and what doesn't. It's very important that you keep your accounts extremely secured there, and uh, again, keep your activity as clandestine as possible. Um, So now that we've talked about that, um, I think there's just a few more things that I want to conclude on. Um, We've been going on for quite a while now or I've been rambling for quite a while. Uh, Let's talk about um, VPS and uh, server authentication or Linux authentication. And I'm going to be talking primarily about servers, uh, cloud instances, virtual private servers, whatever you want to call them and authentication to them. So let's say again, uh, you're running a next cloud instance on AWS, or digital ocean right and uh, you know to authenticate you use ssh nowadays is pretty much the de facto standard and you have the ability to either use a ssh password which you shouldn't use at any uh, you know in in any event and then secondly you have the the ability to use ssh keys which i this if anyone anyone authenticating to a server using SSH passwords is just asking for trouble, right? And I have multiple videos where I cover how to protect yourself from SSH based attacks using services like fail to ban. We also have a Linux security series on our website at Hackexploit.org, where we cover how to secure your server and how to set up SSH keys, stuff like that. So you guys can check that out. If you're interested in securing your Linux servers, we actually offer that as a service, um, So again, it's very important that you set up SSH keys and then an SSH key is essentially what it says is uh, the only person who can access that server now, or authenticate to that server is the person who has the private, uh, the person who has the private key, right? So you have the publicly, uh, the public key stored on the server. And uh, the person who has the private key can then authenticate that way. And they're the only ones who can get access. So there's no password authentication whatsoever. Um, which brings me to my second point. If you have a Linux server, or any server for that matter, uh, disable root access. That's like, again, this is something that's just a must. You you must do this on your server because in the event your server is compromised and is compromised through the root account, which I've seen happen because people just create servers and they say, oh, yeah, we'll just set any password for the root password. They don't know that the root account has, you can pretty much do whatever you want through it. They don't disable it. Uh, they uh, they don't secure SSH. They don't use SSH keys. Uh, their their server IP is leaked and their server gets bombarded with attacks. In most cases that the attacks are successful through brute force attempts because there's no brute force protection, but you don't need that if you're using an SSH key. So uh, th- that's something that should be very easy to set up. Um, and then of course, I want to talk about, uh, just to conclude this, um, I want to talk about setting up like a mini intrusion detection system or a honeypot which i have covered actually and that is the use of canary tokens now this the reason i'm covering canary tokens is because it's very simple to understand and to use and anyone can do this doesn't matter how old you are doesn't matter how young you are anyone can do this doesn't matter whether you're tech savvy whether you work as a secretary whether the only thing you use your computer for is uh playing pinball or whatever um this is a great uh, is a great solution that allows you to to essentially monitor and see you know if anyone is accessing your computer. Again, it's a very basic introduction to an intrusion detection system on a personal level. So, a canary token, and you can find this at canarytokens.org. A canary token is again is uh, from the website. Let me just give you the subtitle as you can see is a quick free detection for the masses right and allows you to detect intrusions into your systems by a certain a certain, uh, a, certain asp, uh, a certain technique that could be considered to be social engineering so the thing is you go to the website and then you select the type of token you want to generate it. now the types of tokens are based on the service that you uh, that you actually want to try and emulate here so for example let's say i want to i want to set up a canary token on my Windows or Linux system. And uh, again, this is going to tell me if anyone is accessing or if there is any intrusion on my system. So the file formats are either a URL, which can be used for tracking, which again, if you send to someone, you're able to see, all right, that URL was visited. So that's simple. You then have the DNS token, a unique uh, email address, so you can set up, uh, it's it's almost like a, um, uh, if any of you have used an Android application, um, called Tasker, right? It allows you to automate things. So again, uh, you can generate uh, a token f- uh, based on whether or not an email is sent to a unique email address so that you get a notification, right? But the interesting thing is you can create a Microsoft Word document uh, that has macros in it, a PDF document, a Windows folder, an EXE binary, a clone website, an SQL server, uh, and again, you can set this up. Again, as I said it gives you all of these solutions, and you can set them up so that if an attacker gets access to your system, and these, of course, are set up to look like they contain important information. Imagine if you saw an SQL server, a, a phony SQL server set up, right? So if I, yeah, you can click on that. You also have AWS keys, right? So let's say you store these things, and these are essentially just going to be your honeypot now. And if any attacker gets access to your system, this can be on your organization computer at work, right? So if you want to see if anyone's accessing your computer when you're away uh, from your desk, again, you can just set this stuff up. And uh, what I like doing is setting up a Word document uh, and I like titling it uh, passwords or credentials, uh, or I, you know, I keep accounts or account information, things that an attacker or someone who is interested in getting access to your con- computer would be interested in, right? And what happens is once they click on it, or once they try and access it, uh, you will be sent a notification to your email telling you that, hey, this document was opened, this PDF document was opened, this folder was o- opened and the EXE was executed, there is an intrusion on your system and of course that's going to be very interesting for you because if you're not at your system and let's say you're you're back at home and someone's accessing your computer you know you 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 get uh you get news of it uh much faster than uh than any intrusion detection system would especially if the attack is is coordinated through a single user into the system, and this is a great system that I I don't see many companies deploying, but it can be extremely it can be extremely useful because attackers will usually usually have the presumption that you know people working in an organization using a computer are generally foolish in that they make a lot of mistakes, they store a lot of important information on the systems, they leave everything unsecured. And you know, you, you, this is sort of a way of playing into their own trap, right? So you can set up all of these honeypots around your network. And again, they'll not prevent an attack, right? This is not preventative, but they will they allow you to to actually detect attacks or intrusions into particular systems. So again, it's a really, really great honeypot system that I I really, really support a lot. And I recommend that everyone set up at home uh, for the organizations, even if you run a small company, it's fantastic, right? So I really recommend that you do that. Now, of course, I know I haven't been completely exhaustive in this video, I've simply just covered uh, certain aspects of personal security and OPSEC to a certain extent. Um, And most of my, my focus was towards password security, which is very important. I would love to have a discussion with you guys in the comment section. If you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes, again, you can jump onto the YouTube video and have a discussion there. And you can check out the podcast notes and the write-up for this particular podcast on our website at hackexploit.org where you'll get an in-depth guide as to what we've covered, all the links, all the resources. And uh, you can actually get started that way. Again, the purpose of this video was to introduce users to a a structured way of looking at security at personal security, and how to secure themselves from the ground up. Uh, And of course, some aspects are more important than the other, the others are more nuanced, uh, you know, based on your type of operating system you're using and stuff like that. So that's essentially all that I wanted to cover in this particular episode. Um, If you liked this episode, found it helpful, please leave a like down below or please leave a rating on iTunes or Spotify. And I'm going to be seeing you in the next episode.